Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay, Quillette's Canadian editor. Long before Toronto playwright and performer Sky Gilbert became a contributor to Quillette, he'd been a prominent figure in Toronto's LGBT arts community. Not only has he written such well-known productions as Drag Queens in Outer Space, but he founded the iconic Buddies in Bad Times Theatre, which survives to this day, though Gilbert himself no longer plays a role in its operation. Given his status as a prominent artist who's been championing LGBT causes since the late 1970s, one might assume that Gilbert was a member in good standing with Toronto's theatrical world. But as Gilbert explained in his most recent Quillette article, called Watching My Own Excommunication on a Facebook Video, that is not the case. Following Gilbert's critique of a book by transgender writer Vivek Shraya called I'm Afraid of Men, Gilbert was effectively shamed and shunned by the artistic community he helped build. This week, he spoke to me in Toronto about the changes that led up to this moment of apparent crisis within the LGBT world. Here are excerpts from our conversation. In 1979, you founded your own theatre company. You must have been very young. Tell me why you felt it was necessary in the late 1970s to create a new theatre in Toronto that catered to LGBT themes? Well, it didn't. That was the crazy thing, was I was in the closet when I started the company. I was just sort of coming out. I left the U of T where I just dropped out of the MA program. Sorry, that's that's University of Toronto. Yeah, I dropped out of the University of Toronto when I just finished the MA program. Sorry, nearly finished, much to the chagrin of my parents, the disapproval. And I was just sort of coming out, but kind of quietly and carefully the way people did, especially back then and still do. So I was scared kind of to do gay theater. I didn't think we'd get grants, for instance. And I founded it with two people, but they left immediately. I was scared of coming out in every way, though the work was getting gay. So I did a play about the, the beat poets, and they're, well, a lot of them are gay. And I did a play about Patti Smith, who has lesbianic-ish writing, even though she's straight. So I did this stuff that was kind of queer in the writing, and that wasn't until about 1981 I did a play called Lana Turner Has Collapsed, which was based on Frank O'Hara's poetry, The Gay Poet. And I was able to put on the poster based on gay poet Frank O'Hara. And then it was like, will the councils get mad? And they didn't. In fact, it sort of had a niche. I'm not saying the money came pouring in, but it was like there was a place at that time for gay theater. So, And when you say councils... Oh, Canada Council, Ontario Arts Council, and the Toronto Arts Council. And there used to be something called the Metropolitan Toronto Arts Council. So just for people outside Canada, these are the, the granting bodies that... I guess without them, you probably wouldn't have a lot of the performing arts. I would have probably done theater no matter what. (laughs) But the fact is that it's amazing, the support. Like, it's what foundations do in the States for the American listeners. Um, Basically, we don't have a commercial theater like American commercial theater, which is one reason why I'm so happy to be here, because I'm not a, a commercial theater guy. I consider myself an artist, and I do work, which is really challenging on many levels. I hope it to be at any rate. And so the granting system is a place for artists to actually get money to do work. Let me ask you a more general question. What did it mean 
to do gay theater in the 1970s? Well, it was weird. There was John Herbert. So John Herbert was the drag queen who wrote Fortune in Men's Eyes. He was an out uh, drag queen. He was considered nutty and very emotional, as I am by some. And he wrote Fortune in Men's Eyes. And then he continued to do plays, but without much success um, after that huge hit that became a Hollywood film. Then there were a couple of artists, Paul Bettis, Larry Feinberg. Larry Feinberg, for instance, did work that had uh, bisexual characters. And this was, for me, an inspiration. Paul Bettis had a theater that was very camp, and he's a man I greatly admired, a director, gay director. But you know what I mean? That's kind of it. There were bisexual characters. There wasn't a gay theater in Toronto. Frankly, I was thinking of John Waters. I was thinking of, well, Andy Warhol, the whole ridiculous theater thing that grew out of actually of Andy Warhol to some degree. I was thinking of that in the back of my head. I thought, why doesn't Toronto have that? That was in the back of my head. Let me ask you, this may seem like an obvious question, but you're a self-identified drag queen? Yes. In terms of performing in drag, was that at the time, and I guess is it now even considered part of LGBT theater, or was that seen as sort of like a cabaret act for straight people? Um, You're right. It's basically a cabaret act for straight people. And that was one thing that was revolutionary about what I did. When I wrote Drag Queens on Trial and Drag Queens in Outer Space, that was a big deal. Though I will say, of course, that in New York, you had the Ridiculous Theatre Company. You had theatre that was extremely transgressive, more transgressive than my work. Like, I write plays, right? I am a writer, right? And these are not writers. They're sort of performers. They're either basically transgressive performers who actually are so transgressive that they think that plays are old-fashioned. And so they kind of bridge a gap, which my plays did to some degree. For instance, my drag queens would step out of the play, and they would lip-sync, and they would talk directly to the audience in my plays. So there were ways, but they weren't as transgressive as, like, you see an Andy Warhol movie where she's having sex with a bottle of beer. That wasn't quite happening in my plays. Um, So I would say that, yes, basically then and now, drag queens are completely ghettoized. They are the lowest form. The politics of the LGBT community have transformed so many times since the 1970s. I think sometimes people lose track of the sort of things people discussed and fought about back then. Right now, there's this focus on some of the tensions that exist between, say, gay people and transgender people and the fracturing of the LGBT umbrella. But is that something people talked about in the 70s and 80s? There was always a kind of a division between lesbians and gay men. When I founded Buddies, one of the purposes was to have cooperation, and not just cooperation, to celebrate together, celebrate each other, get off on each other as lesbians and gay men the way that only lesbians and gay men can. And that's why Sue Golding, now Johnny Golding, was the president. And she and I worked together to, and Johnny, by the way, is a woman, but her name is Johnny. That's why we worked together to create a space for gays and But I I think what I'd like to talk about is what happened to gay politics. And what happened to gay politics, it has a lot to do with AIDS, which basically is what has completely fractured us. Though I think to some degrees it's historical uh, what's happened. It always happens to queer politics. Is that we basically said that we abjure gender. Like we said, being gay has nothing to do with gender, right? So this is what happened because of AIDS. So what happened because of AIDS is that gay men started pretending they weren't having sex. They didn't stop having sex. They started being as hypocritical as straight people and pretending they weren't having sex and uh, acting like straight people in that way. Very injurious to what the best thing of our culture was, that we were frank, openly sexual people. And uh, lesbians always had issues around being sexual. Some were and some weren't. And so what happened was is that with AIDS, 
it became, oh, if I'm sexual or if I appear to be sexual, I will get AIDS. Because I know for a fact that men didn't stop having sex with and being promiscuous. They used condoms, which saved us and the world. But this hypocrisy came in, right? And part of that hypocrisy was, I'm not one of those flaming sluts. They caused AIDS, right? And they're flaming effeminate men. Um, no, I'm going to be just like straight people. And this is something I've been railing about for years. And gay people in Toronto will go, there it goes again. But this is what happened. So basically, the, the idea was to say, we're not feminine. We're men. Now, it's very true, of course, that gay men are men and lesbians are women. And there's lots of gay men who are plumbers. God help the gay plumbers. Good for them. But the point is, is that what we offer, because our sexuality challenges in its very fundamental core, challenges notions of gender. What happens is, is that, and I can explain why if you want me to, but because it does, we will always have that taint. But to me, it's something to be proud of, that we are gender not normal, right? When the gays and lesbians abjured that, what happened? When they said, we're just normal, we're just like straight people. Then the trans people moved in and they kind of took gender over. And what's interesting now, one of the reasons why gays and lesbians can't take gender back again is because they won't, because they don't want to, like I do, but I'm one of the few out gay writers who says, hey, I'm really proud that I'm a girly boy, you know, and I think it's one of the things of most value about me, right? So that's what's happened. And, and now you might find, wonder why gays and lesbians are sitting by and watching the trans community sort of become homophobic, I think. I certainly have written about the fact that I think the trans community is not all trans people are homophobic, but there is a lot of homophobia in trans theory. And uh, that's because gay and lesbian people don't, they don't even care a lot of them to be called gay and lesbian. What they do is they say, I am a person first. And they say that with great, you know, severity and great anger. Please don't tell me that me being gay or lesbian is important. I have a sexual partner and it's not even sexual. It's romantic because I'm monogamous and I have kids like you and I have one partner and the, the gender of that person should not matter. And we all know that, unfortunately, the gender does matter <laughs> to queer people. And it's actually the basis of what makes them different and interesting in their small percentage, because they are a small percentage of the general population. You've just said a dozen things that ring true to me, but half of which are heresies. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. Well, nobody wants to hear this right now. And and that's why I, when I, I saw this coming and I removed myself from... Buddies in 1997, partially because I could tell that the community was moving in a different direction. Let me ask you this. Right now, we're talking a lot about trans issues. And just to clarify, obviously, when you or I talk about you know trans ideology or this or that, we're accepting the fact that the vast majority of people who are trans or they just want to live their lives, we're, we're talking about um, maybe the most strenuous ex extrapolation of trans ideology on social media. Not all trans people believe right. that there's no gender, okay? Or else you wouldn't have transsexuals who are people who decide side that they change for because gender is important to them. But 1997, that's a long time ago. What I'm hearing is that the conversation we're having now about gender is part of a backlash to sexuality that took place in the late 20th century. Yeah. So how did that manifest itself in the late 90s? You've said that, well, you could already see that you were becoming a controversial figure. What were the sort of things you were saying about your identity and your sexuality that people were pushing back against ideologically? Well, I used to call myself a proud slut, and I used to say that I was not in a monogamous relationship. I still say those things, but when I used to say them, 
I was a community leader, frankly, for a period, short period. <laughs> and yeah, that was what happened. And then suddenly I began to realize in the middle 90s that a lot of people didn't like me. And of course, I obsess about it because I'm screwed was up this in that projection? way. Were they, were, they, were, were there things about themselves they didn't like and they were projecting? Oh, yeah. You? That's the whole point, was that they no longer wanted someone who identified as feminine, a man who identified as feminine and sexual, to be representing them. Now, I never represented them. You may know this yourself, but if you speak out on a subject and you identify yourself, then people will turn you into a spokesperson. The only reason I'm a gay spokesperson or ever was is because I'm a loudmouth, right? And so I opened my mouth. Other people didn't. Anyway, I was speaking for myself and a lot of people for a period came behind me and said, wow, yeah, we're queer, we're pansies, we're dykes, we're butch dykes, and we're all into this gender stuff. And we like sex. And then at a certain point, that became no. And I knew because I ran the company, and there were a lot of middle class gay men who wouldn't come to the company. And somebody came in and spit. <laughs> and it was about me. So it's not just he didn't just decide to spit on buddies. Things like that were starting to happen where I just became a symbol of all that's wrong. I remember sitting with somebody in the late 80s and looking at a picture of um, Divine on a video in a bar and having a guy turn to me and say, isn't it great that we're finally away from that, that we finally left that behind? And I'm, of course, a very opposite. <laughs> there was a period when I started doing Drag Queens on Trial, the drag queens weren't allowed in bars, this is the late 80s, to perform. Then what happened was in the late 80s, the drag queens became big fundraisers for AIDS. And that has really helped within the gay community. The fact is that drag isn't just about raising money for AIDS, especially since um, in the gay community, at least, it's not the same. The crisis isn't the same anymore. And so drag queens are about being filthy. <laughs> and that's one of the things that makes them so wonderful. So I'm obviously the, um, the boring straight person in this conversation. But my boring straight perspective mm -hmm. in terms of the development of popular culture is I very much remember the TV show Will and Grace. Yeah. And at the time, it was considered this groundbreaking show because yeah. there were openly gay characters. Uh, you know, now it would be seen as regressive in all sorts of ways. But it was one of the many bland cultural institutions through which I think straight society came to understand and accept gay culture. And of course... Anybody who's over 40 will probably remember that there were two main gay characters in that show. There was, there was Will, who was very much this uh, straight-laced, uh, white-collar worker who, you know, very bourgeois. And then he had this friend Jack, who was kind of like his alter ego, who fulfilled many of the stereotypes of party. I'm not letting you ask your question, but I would say that the gay character in that show was Jack. Okay, so Will was the new gay that I'm talking about that was trying in every way as possible not to be. He would go out on dates. He never talked about going to a bathhouse or but was Will a meeting some hot guy. <laughs> well, of course, some gay men are monogamous. I just happen to not think that monogamy is very good for people, right? I don't think gays are more promiscuous or gay men would be, it is, are more promiscuous than straight people. I think that monogamy is not a humane or human suitable lifestyle for most people. That's such a male thing to say. Sometimes males say it, but I think that in actual fact, Emma Goldman said it, okay? Emma Goldman railed against marriage and jealousy and talked about marriage as a financial institution and an exploitation of women. There are women who have spoken about it too, just no one wants to talk about those women. Let me ask you a question about this. It sounds like it was a successful union of, of lesbians and gay men. Yes, it was in, wonderful. In, in it was running, so wonderful. Running uh, <laughs> Buddies in Bad Times. 
I got to say this is a little bit surprising to me. I lived for a few years in, in a gay part of Toronto, and I just noticed that in terms of, for instance, bar culture, there were lesbian bars and there were gay bars. From my observation, these were two very different kinds of social cultures. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they are. This is important to remember. Women are constantly in danger of rape and of abuse, and I'm not... A- a person who is a victim culture advocate, but I do think it's important to recognize that women are in a different position than men are in our culture. And not all men are rapists and blah, blah, blah. But when women go out, when women display their bodies that are constantly under the gaze of television and movies and porn magazines and men's aren't, we have two completely different impulses. Lesbians have had the impulse, I'm talking about a major cultural way, to cover, to hide. Because, in fact, it's dangerous to show yourself. Men are predators just culturally. Not each man, but culturally that's what's set up. We're the worst. And, no, but men are fine. No, it's, true. it's great that they're sexual and they're predators. And, and a lot of women I know love that aspect of men. But it's the way the culture sets up that men can only be predators and women can only be prey. That's the sexist paradigm, which is a killer. So gay men want to display their bodies. Have you ever thought of it? They want they want to be objectified. I'm on a crazy diet right now. <laughs> I want to be objectified, even at my late age. Can you see why? Because you'll never see pictures. I mean, you can go to a gay magazine, but in the main culture, it's only women who are objectified, except of sports. Of course, we gay men love it when sports figures are allowed to take off their shirts. Yes, they're different cultures, but there are really sexual lesbians and there are really sexual gay men. And the women I enjoyed so much were women who'd fought. The problem for me with lesbians was they had to struggle with the anti-sex element of the lesbian community. Trouble with gay men was they had to struggle with the anti-political element. So gay men, they're not necessarily any stupider than anyone. They're just as stupid as most people, gay men. But they are tend to be apolitical, right? And there's reasons for that according to what I'm sort of telling you, that for it has to do with how we're trained around our sexuality to be aggressive. Even though we're gay, we're trained to get what we want, we're trained to go out and get sex, we're trained to all that stuff. And women are kind of trained the opposite way. and um, But despite this, artistically, they were able to collaborate at Buddies, you're telling me. It was sex and art. (laughs) In other words, what I got off on with Johnny Golding was that she was all for these dungeon parties we had. And I remember when the police would come, Johnny would get dressed up in a mesh top. And we were worried that the police, because there was sex happening at these dungeon parties, when we weren't part of a city building, which Buddies is now, we had sex parties. And just think of them as a fundraiser. Doing the cultural thing that we do. (laughs) Wow. Well, if you're a sexual person, you go, sex is okay. And if people want to have sex at a party, in fact, straight people do have sex at parties. Excuse me. It sounds like they like to pretend they don't, but they do. We just call it a sex party and are open about it. It's a great fundraising idea. But it raises a lot of money. No, it helped us. And and but the idea was is that with these dungeon parties, when the police would come, Sue would stand at the door with her mesh top, and those cops would go away because they were terrified. Because they're terrified of a, you know a strong sexual female displaying her body, so they just went away. That does sound terrifying. <laughs> Let me ask you a little bit more about the modern era. You made the very interesting point that to a certain extent, as part of the residue of the tragic AIDS crisis that there was this sort of shrinking away from the idea of sexuality and that gender, which is a separate issue, that was sort of left to gender theorists and eventually that became the modern transgender movement. When did you see the modern transgender movement uh, asserting itself in a muscular way within the LGBT community? That's hard to say. I mean, I didn't have any feud with trans politics until about 
I don't know, three or four years ago. It was all to me just part of one big happy family. You've already said that there's always been controversy about the political significance of being a drag queen. Was this expanded or changed in the last few years as gender ideology became more pronounced? Well, I've written plays about drag queens for a long time. I've written some plays. I used to work very much with Gavin Crawford, who's a CBC person. And uh, he played women in my plays, but he was a man playing a woman. The interesting thing about Gavin, because he's such a consummate actor, he should be at Stratford, Gavin, was that he was able to be a woman on stage. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, the audience didn't know, because, of course, it's also, he's a bit of a star, that Gavin was doing it. So it's always drag, in a sense. There's no, right? But that was the kind of play I did in the last uh, few years at Buddy's. I would say, I think what happens with me is it isn't so much about drag for me, it's about sex. It's about honesty. All of my work, what people go, well, why gay and lesbian theater? You have Will and Grace, you have Ellen. And I would say, because does Ellen talk about her dildo and her relationship with her dildo? Does Ellen talk about the fact of how difficult it is when you meet a woman with long nails? Because if she's going to fist you, the nails will get in the Ellen way. Ellen is on a Cheerio box. <laughs> yeah, so what I'm saying is, is that, the, that, that being gay has to, and lesbian has to do with sex. And one of the reasons what I would immediately say was at Buddy's, when I was still there, is Buddy's is the only place where you'll find details of our lives. Which, of course, sometimes means sexual details, but it isn't all just details of sex. It's things that related to sex. But you won't see that in mainstream. You won't see that in Will and Grace. You get hints that Jack is thinks some guy is cute. But in my plays, I would talk about not only drag, but I would talk about bathhouses, about sex trade work, about S&M, of course, about promiscuity and open relationships and alternative relationships. And that is what there's no market for right now. Like nobody in the gay community is interested. There was a heartbreaking play in New York six or seven years ago. I think it was called The Nance. I heard about that, but what was that? Nathan Lane starred in it. And he played a vaudeville actor, I guess from the 20s or 30s, who starred in these vaudeville productions where the character, who was typically known as the Nance, which yeah. is a derogatory oh, right. term, uh, who would play this very campy, gay comic figure who would sort of strut about on stage and make all these very obvious double entendres about gay life. Mm. And the straight people would be titillated because yeah. it was transgressive. But there were also just a lot of gay men who would come yeah, to the theater and absolutely. watch it. And it became like a meeting place for gay men. It's a very sad play because as the play goes on, the authorities eventually bust the theater and public decency and all that. But it very much profiles a lot of the social panic around gay sexuality during that period. Is there another kind of social panic about sex that's taking place in the LGBT community? Oh, I would say there's a social panic around sex everywhere. So, I mean, we now go home at night. In my experience, it's hard to find bars. People who live in condos, I'm coming from the perspective of Toronto, but people who live in condos do not like bars because they're raising their kids and stuff. I'd say the, the biggest signal of the no sex thing is Disney. When I was around in the late 60s or early 70s, there was a point where, I don't know if you remember, but Disney stopped making movies. There was a possibility of culture. And they were showing their porn movies were in the late 60s, early 70s, were beginning, like I'm Curious Yellow, no one even remember that, were beginning to get some sort of mainstream, and you know, John Waters, you need sort of mainstream acceptance. Then it all, after AIDS, it all turned around again. And now, of course, culture is mega culture. It's about the social media and the web. It's about Marvel comics. And there is no mainstream culture. It's just business, right? And so it makes it very difficult for artists when everybody is going home and they're not having sex and they're not relating to other people. 
in the marketplace and they're consuming, this is the brave new world we're living in, they're consuming their games and the manufactured entertainment that has been given to them as pap so they will shut up and buy products. I saw an ad on TV today that said, what you purchase is not just what you like, but who you are. And I thought, wow. We can't have this discussion without also mentioning that there's also the shadow world of media consumption where people in private also have access to all kinds of crazy pornography. Oh, no, that's gigantic. And I would say that has also changed. But the hypocrisy around that is unbelievable. As it's proposed, for instance, in Vancouver, I think it's called SOGI. SOGI is this highly gender progressive curriculum that the provincial government has introduced and and is the subject of some controversy. Yeah, I have no problem with gay and lesbian and possibly trans curriculum. The problem with Sochi is they're trying to start young kids on thinking about themselves as male or female at a very, very young age. Anyway, I think that you have this thing where you have conservative right-wing idiots like Ford opposing this gay and lesbian or just sex ed curriculum. And all the kids have to do is turn on the computer. We live in an incredibly hypocritical society because on the one hand, we're supposedly watching Disney, but the kids turn on their computers and watch porn. And I have nothing against porn, but I will tell you one thing. It's fantasy of a Disney variety. And that may sound strange, but it has nothing to do with reality. It has to do with, yeah, sex and fantasies and things. But there's a problem among young people now, especially young men who get very addicted to visual images. They don't know how to sex with a woman anymore or a man. Now, I'm not speaking against porn. Please don't ever think I would. I think it's a fabulous thing. The problem with all of this is that we have this incredible technology, which is what people are starting to talk about which no one has educated anyone about. And it's taking over our lives. We don't have to ban it, and we don't have to be anti-digital or anti-technology, but we have to understand what it's doing. So a lot of these strands that we're talking about, they came together fairly recently, and I guess this is why we're having this discussion. A Canadian author who came out as trans, I think in 2016, wrote a book. I know you don't want to single out this particular author as somebody you dislike, but this book It sounds like it symbolized a lot of your frustrations with the way discussions about sex and gender have been going in recent years. Is that true? Um, Let's just say that what happened is is that I began to notice, particularly because I went to a queer performance conference. Which which you wrote about. Which I wrote about a, a couple of years ago. That was the first time I noticed it because when I talked about being a drag queen... In a queer space, instead of there being some sort of support or acknowledgement of it as a choice, perhaps even a valorous choice or a brave choice, I was being attacked, basically, for being a drag queen um, by certain trans people there. And so that was when suddenly I went, what's going on here, right? Like, why am I... Um, being criticized by my own kind, basically, for being a drag queen. And this was the place where I thought I would feel most comfortable about being myself. So, um, And then I began to notice it in little ways in various, I don't do social media, but in articles on the web and stuff about trans people objecting to drag queens and why they did. And then when I read uh, this book, Vivek's book, I was amazed to see how anti-gay she was, and it really upset me. And you know, her book is being taught in schools. But the book is called Why I'm Afraid of Men, is that right? Yes. <laughs> and I had a problem with the title. I said, should we have a book called Why I'm Afraid of Jews? That was what I said in my first article about Vivek's book, because I don't think you should write a book with a title that is 
about a group of people that demonizes them in such a way. But yeah, the book is about how being a trans woman is better than being a gay man to a great degree and how horrible gay culture is and how she talks a lot about how gay men come on to her in bars and feel her up. Well, let me tell you, <laughs> this happens a lot. But when I was in Ireland recently at a bar, um, a woman came up to me and she just put, and it was one of those mixed fine, I'm, well, it's a long story, but yes, I'm fine with women and, and, and lesbians and whatever. Let's mix it all up. But she comes up to me and she's a straight woman, obviously, and she just cups my, shall we call it my breast? Because I have such nice big tits. She cups my own, not my drag chest in her hand and goes, nice. I said, take your hand off my body. So I'm saying it goes both ways. There are people who are offensive, men, women, and straight and gay. And she talks a little bit how gay men are being trained to let down boundaries and how that's caused all these difficulties. It's like, no, it's what makes us such beautiful people. When you walk into a dark room or a bathhouse with gay men because you don't have the situation of rape, the victimization of women, which and I think Straight people could learn from this. They, they, it's hard to institute a straight bathhouse because women will feel threatened, but they could aim for a culture like ours where people learn to say, no, not right now, or yes. And there's a civility, civility around sexual contact. But for Vivek, this was offensive to her that men objectified her and found her sexy. And I think the trans movement, again, not trans people, but the politics of the trans movement is anti-sex. It's not about sex. They even say that. They say, this is not about sex. This is about gender. And yet, many of the most strident trans activists do demand sexual access to women's bodies. There's a movement online where trans women will call out lesbians and... um, Right demand sex or at least sexual attention from them. Well, I think that's interesting because I think it's kind of not sexual. It's kind of like rape. Like rape isn't sexual. Rape is power. Rape is violence. So when trans women demand that lesbians have sex with them, it's not rape. But it's nothing to do with sex. Sex has to do with you're in the dark, you're in in public, you're somewhere with someone, you see them, your eyes meet, touch begins, you begin to have a back and forth of permissions and whatever. That's what sex is. This goes to your larger theory that you developed in your Quillette article of modern progressive culture as resembling a religious movement. One of the the first things any fundamentalist religious movement or, or cult does is it takes away the sexual impulse. Or at least it renders sex suspicious. Well, it's. I think one of the biggest problems is when I talk about it being an anti-sexual culture, which I do, people just think I'm nuts because they'll go, what about the porn online? I'll go, do you understand? I'm all for pornography again because it's one of the only places we have in such a repressed culture to be sexual. But that's messed up, right? So in other words, we live in a culture where there's prurience, where people have to be dirty, where men have to go to strip clubs. Now, I'm not saying that none of this would happen in an ideal culture, because some would still be there, because there's a variety of human sexuality, frankly, but and a diversity which we can't even imagine. <laughs> but we live in a culture that's very screwed up and very post-Victorian. And so no matter how many times we see Miley Cyrus wiggle her bum, Miley Cyrus wiggling her bum is actually a repressive thing. I mean, not because it's bad for women to wiggle their bums and ogle them, but because young men can't wiggle their bums. Because be, because women have to be on display for men only. Men are, cannot be on display for women. Because she's considered a bad girl 
for doing it. Like, there's so many ways in which it's a mess. But it's a sort of modern burlesque, in a way. It is a modern burlesque. And, and it's great, because I love burlesque. Well, I don't like burlesque as much as strippers, because I think burlesques are some, a bit amateur, but, but cause they don't do it. And they don't really hump the pole. The strippers, they're working girls, and they're making the money. But yeah, those strippers are out there. And they are, and they are earning a living, just like sex trade workers, trying to survive in a culture which doesn't allow women to be anything but bodies. So I'm trying just to say that it's an anti-sexual culture and don't be fooled by how sexual, quote-unquote, our culture is. It's all post-Victorian stuff. Anybody who's read your most recent Quillette article about what happened to you after you delivered this critique will know that the theater you founded, you haven't had an oversight role of it, Buddies in Bad Times, for some years now, but they were due to stage a reading of one of your plays and they declined to do so. And then they held this elaborate, they called it a long table ceremony, uh, to discuss the reactions to you and your postures in regard to LGBT politics. And I think the thing went on for three hours. It was on the internet. It's all described in your article. Before we go any further, we're just going to play a few segments from that long table ceremony just to give people a flavor of it. The action of writing and publishing the thing that he published, the poem dedicated to Vivek, a week before a reading that was scheduled that was a celebratory work, a night in the context of our 40th anniversary season, um, which, again, to clarify, like it wasn't, Sky was not involved in the reading at all, besides that he authored the play 32 years ago, but we wanted, I felt it was appropriate to include a work of his in our 40th anniversary. And by publishing what he did a week before, and the kind of traction that it was starting to get in the wider world put us into what I feel was an impossible position. Go ahead with the reading and signal to the community that it doesn't matter, that our founding forefather can publish that kind of... I keep using the tempered language of highly problematic because I leave it to all of you intelligent people to unpack the piece for yourself. I don't want to do that work here for you. But that piece is so problematic in so many ways and raises so many issues. And to me, it was a moment of drawing a line in the sand of saying, well, we can tacitly endorse you saying whatever you want and celebrating you in the same week. Or we can pause for a moment and we can say, let's talk about this there's a problem here and we need to talk about it and I really like the argument has turned into one of censorship which I find uh, sort of stunning the way it's been spun into something about censorship when I curated that work and then I said we're not going to do it after all we're doing this he didn't it wasn't like we're not censoring his play and we are upset that he's represent the way he's representing himself and thus us in the community at this time is unacceptable. And we have to have a conversation about it. We can't keep going. What struck me about that is just the utter humorlessness of it and the sort of sanctimonious religiosity of it. And again, this is my privilege as a straight cis man. What I always have loved about gay culture is the irony, the camp. You put your finger on it. Attacking camp and drag queens would be the same as attacking Yiddish culture and Jewish comedy, which is 
the very basis of American culture to some degree. Um, it is our defense system. Just as for the Jews, humor was their defense. Sure. It is the essence of gay culture and lesbian culture, and it's different in lesbian culture, and, and lesbians have a different way of expressing it sometimes. One of the ways that lesbians do it is through their love of murder mysteries and their love of um, you know, film noir is lesbian camp. But there's a way in which, um, when I was at the conference that so traumatized me, that was one of the things that I will never forget. This was, was back when, in 2016, yeah, right? Yeah. When I went to this performing arts queer conference, the, the person who was attacking me for being a drag queen said that drag humor was too cruel. So just think about that for a minute. Like for me, I've been writing comedies for years for the theater. The essence of comedy is anger. It has been the essence of comedy since time immemorial. If you look at Lysistrata, if you look at, uh, which is some of the earliest written known Western comedies that we know of, they're about anger. So if you get rid of that camp, quote unquote, cruelty, but the other thing to remember about camp is that camp is cruel to be kind in the sense that what camp makes fun of is almost always, well, it is, if it's truly camp, deeply out of love, okay? So you have to love something and hate it at exactly the same time, which takes it even beyond Shakespeare who mixed genres, right? But his work isn't so much camp because it's not at the same time. It's a very modern notion, this camp notion that you can experience, you can, at the same time as you're, you're feeling very sad for this person, you can also be laughing at them. So you have sympathy and you also have cruelty, right? But anyway, you're absolutely right. Camp is the essence of what we do. It's the essence of what, and then, Susan Sontag said it, it's, it's the gay culture contribution to Western society. And uh, it's incredibly important. I think you might have to arm wrestle with the Jews for that. <laughs> no, but she said Jews and homosexuals. All right, she, okay. That's exactly what her okay, phrase good. was. All right, well, then, then you we and got I... got even Stephen. You and I are the perfect pairing to have this discussion. Then. When you wrote about this, this three-hour ceremony, again, it's, uh, we'll link to it uh, on the web, um, you spoke with some sympathy about mm-hmm. the people who were there. Because yeah. even though, you know, some of the people who went to that meeting and it was staged at the Buddies and Bad Times Theater, they had a table, people got up and they said their piece. And not all, but many of them said said nasty things about you. You write about these people in a spirit, I think, of understanding. Tell me what they're suffering or what they're experiencing that you think they deserve well, some Well, I mean, of pity. it's not so much about the table. I had perhaps talk to a couple of people at the table. I didn't really know them very well, other than um, their artistic director. But basically, it's about the people I know who are trans and the people I know of color and the people I know who've experienced a type of hate and exclusion. I understand what they're going through. And I've gone through a similar thing. And I'm not someone to rate victims. So I think that victimhood is victimhood. And there's no point in going, you're more a victim than I am. I'd also say it has to do with young people, like seeing young people who seem so lost because the of the, as I say in my article, because of climate change and the economic situation and racism uh, and populism and all of these reasons why the young are lost. I'm not saying there aren't problems there. I'm talking about if you're going to deal with the issues of young people and Uh, racism and economic problems, then you don't have a religious ceremony. That may be something people can do on their own, but publicly what we want to do in our institutions is try to think and reason and figure out what's going on. When you hear voices like that, some of these people you're probably going to come across in coming years and maybe even work with 
do you think in a couple of years people will look back on this and say, well, we got really angry about that, but that was a product of the times, and now uh, let's bury the hatchet? Or is this some kind of permanent rift? Well, for one thing, there have been so many people in the theater community who have walked up to me in crowded lobbies <laughs> and thrown their arms around me. or just, And some of these are people who I don't know very well. And in the theater there, this is going to sound really conceited and horrible <laughs> and elitist, but there's something called an aristocracy of talent, which means that the people who are talented and do uh, good work and are professionals, uh, people are going to hate me saying this, but it's true, they um, have a bit of a bond because their whole life is devoted to their craft and their work. And nothing can really break that bond. I firmly believe that. And they recognize other people who have devoted their lives to art, which is what I've done. And I mean, yes, I have a job as a teacher because my art doesn't give me any money. But yeah, I've devoted my life to art. And I think for me, I'm crazy enough to believe that fiction is more real than reality. (laughs) I live in the fiction of the characters I create and, and write about so much in the books I read and the uh, Shakespeare I read. And, and it sounds like I'm being a crazy escapist here, but I'm just saying that um, I believe in the world of art so strongly that I believe that there's a lot of support there. People who, talent will find talent, and that's what happens in that world. I don't want to f- talk so much about um, my personal future. It's enough to say what I said in the article, which is that it's difficult at times, for sure. So let me end by asking you a question about the past, because... This meeting at Buddies in Bad Times, the long table, I think it was billed as sort of an intergenerational dialogue, the idea that, well, how do we manage these doctrinal differences between previous generations of artists and maybe people who are now in their 20s? If you look back to the 70s, were you on the other end of that? Like, were there things you were saying or doing that, say, LGBT activists who were then in their 50s or 60s, and maybe they've passed on now, that they were in your shoes now, and maybe if they were still around, they're saying, look, what goes around comes around, just as you undermine me, now you're being no, undermined I'll tell yourself. you the difference. Sorry to interrupt you. I'll tell you the difference. The difference was back then, we simply wanted a place at the table. What is clearly being said to me and being done to me is, we will replace you, unapologetically. You had your time. I've had those words spoken to me. Your time is over. It's our time now. Now, when I worked with buddies, when I was at Canada Council and I would go to meetings and stuff, um, I never stood up at the table and said, you know, we, you straights, your time is over. The gays and lesbians, the queers will replace you. It's our time. We never said that because I never thought that. I knew for one thing that we were a, a small percentage of the population, but that doesn't even matter. I knew that it's not about replacing people is about sitting down at the table, speaking of long tables, and working together to create a more diverse or a more representative or a culture that includes all different colors and shapes and sizes and and sexualities. It was never for us about replacing people. And I have had those words spoken to me by certain activists. Your time is over. And they look you right. It's amazing. They look you right in the eye and they go, handle it, baby. Look at what was done to us. We're now doing it to you. I thought that was interesting because there's kind of a Trumpian thing. Like, so one evil is replaced by another evil. If you think it's so horrible what we did to you, is the answer to be as horrible to us? I don't get that. But anyway, that's the difference, I would say. Sky Gilbert, thank you so much for being on the Quillette Podcast. It's been fun. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. 
head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social.